Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And so thank you for coming back. We're in week two of a sermon series that we're calling Trailhead. And we're talking about liturgy, how we worship well. And it's a good thing to do at the beginning of the year. How is it that we do this core thing that we do, which is central to the life of the church? How do we do it well? Sometimes we simply assume it without thinking about it. And I love going back and saying, well, here's all the things we assume. Let's ask some questions about them. And we started last week not with arguing that we should say these words and not those words. Rather, we said that what we should do away with is the idea that liturgy is something that we like or don't like. Because that puts us at the center of liturgy. And we don't, and that's not where our best selves are. Liturgy is about love. Liturgy is about putting God at the center of our life and in our faith. And the remarkable thing about Christian liturgy, when we put God at the center of it, what we discover is that before we made that choice, much like Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Jesus is saying, actually, I already made you the center of what I'm about. God has made you and us the center of what God is about. He showed his own love to us in this, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that's what liturgy does. Liturgy calls worship, liturgy calls love from us. God has shown his love to us. We return that love back. And we talked very briefly about sort of the very, very general pattern of good liturgy. Gathering, hearing, responding, and sending. And so we're off and running. But I wanted to, I wanted to try and anticipate some of the things that, I, that if we were to sit down and have coffee, which you are always welcome to do with me because I'm already, I'm already an addict to caffeine, so let's just go ahead and do that. If we were to sit down and talk about the sermon, talk about this stuff, talk about liturgy, I would, I'm, I'm trying to anticipate what it is that you might say back to me. And as I talk about liturgy, to some with people who are familiar with it, some with, some, sometimes with people who have no idea what liturgy is, I wonder what the number one reflection you think I hear about liturgy is. Most of the time, it's liturgy is boring. That's what I hear. Liturgy is boring. Now, before we go, oh, you, what horrible person said that to you? No, no, no. For those of us who carry out our faith and our public service in liturgy, I sometimes do kind of hear this embarrassment about it. If someone were to ask you what kind of worship your church has, I've seen this happen so many times, you'd be like, well, we're a liturgical church. Kind of like, sorry, I've sort of, yeah, this sort of head bowed, kind of toe in the sand. And what's the look you probably get in return? Somebody goes, oh, you're a liturgical church. That's cool. We sort of aren't sure what to do with this. It's like this thing that we do actually kind of want to keep hidden here because it's not the cool thing. It's not the new thing. It's not the, it's not the thing that makes, makes us pop and want to dance and sing. But when we, when we sort of do that, when we're like, yeah, well, we're kind of a liturgical church, we sort of give up the game, right? We know we're supposed to show up on Sunday morning. We know we're, we know we're supposed to live out our faith and to support our church. So yes, we will stand by our traditions and nobody's really going to get up and holler at the pastor because the liturgy is the same thing every week and all that kind of stuff. But we, let's acknowledge for one another, can we? Can we tell the truth for a second? We acknowledge that there are times liturgy can fail to be compelling. 
And liturgy fails to deliver what we seek. But here's the, and, and if we own that though, I need you to ask a question of yourself then. So what is it you are seeking? When we come to worship, what is it that you want? Why do we come? If it's not just to, you know, we think we're supposed to live our faith and support the church. What is it that we actually want when we come here? And if you're like, well, we're not really supposed to ask that in faith, I will push back and say that's actually the very first question Jesus asked after his resurrection. Mary comes into the garden and Jesus says, who is it you are seeking? What is it that you want? That's actually the place where faith starts. What are you, what are you after when we do this? And until we are honest about what we desire, everything is kind of a play acting. There's a lot of stuff that goes unsaid. Now, it's not my place, and I'm not trying to tell you what you want. But for the purposes of this morning, can I take a guess? Can I take a shot at this? At least I might hit, I'm hoping to hit, like if I can get like 40% of you, I'll feel pretty good about that. My hunch, we come to worship, is that we seek joy. We seek a connection to the divine that is deeper than my circumstances. We seek to know and we seek to be known in such a way that it gives us life. We want something that on which we can base our lives that is deeper than the stuff I'm going through today, is deeper than the things overhanging my life. We want to know that we are loved and we want to be able to love in return. This is what joy is. Because when I am loved, when I know that God has got God's arms wrapped around me and I can wrap my arms around God, when I know I'm loved, I am free to be my, authentic, my most authentic self, my best self. And in that security, I can love others. And when we are ourselves, we are our most joyful. Not the whimsical, unpredictable circumstances of happiness, and I hope you understand the distinction I'm trying to draw, but these deep reservoirs of joy. Because we've been promised that worshiping God is a joyful experience. That God in God's self is a joyful God. Author Richard Beck, Hunting Magic Eels, a lot of you are reading the book. Thank you so much. A lot of positive feedback. But he reminds us that joy remains constant, transcending the facts, present no matter the situation. That's what we seek. We seek something solid and real on which we can build a life, a trusted path that will take us somewhere good. As it says elsewhere in the scriptures, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And when we worship, we seek that. We want to experience joy. And so the question then is, well, where does joy come from and how can liturgy create joy? Well, one commentator reminded us rather starkly. <laughs> this is so wonderful. He said, the devil's substitute for joy is entertainment. I'll let you think about that for a second. The, sub the devil's substitute for joy is entertainment. In our culture, we've grossly mistaken the two. And, let's be, and this is where we would be at right and say, you know what, liturgy doesn't always produce the serotonin hit of an Orioles home run or of your favorite television show or your favorite food. We get that. Doesn't often do that. But liturgy is entirely countercultural because it says we are not entertained into love of God because that's not how joy works. Joy, almost always, if I were to ask you and say, tell me a joyful moment in your life, almost all of them 
have something to do with connecting to the deepest part of ourselves. And the deepest part of ourselves, friends, can only be known in relationship. Joy is known in relationships. Relationship with God and relationship with one another. And that only happens when we love. So liturgy that is based in love can create joy. Liturgy calls us to love, which opens us up to who we authentically are. And when we can be authentic with ourselves and authentic with one another, that is when we know joy. And why is joy the thing that we're after? Well, how do we know that liturgy produces joy? Well, we've already said it this morning. We gather in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There are many critical aspects of the Christian faith. Of course, the cross is the most central thing, but I would argue that as we think about worship, as we think about the work that we share, this notion of claiming the name of the Trinity is among the most essential things. Because God's own existence is a community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It is this swirling ball of life in God's very existence, and God encompasses all the attributes that we seek. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, something else, and self-control. The Sunday school teachers will remind me about what I just forgot. But anyway, all of those virtues, all those things we seek come from God in community, but a community that is of the same substance, the same essential reality. And so what happens is that in worship, when the Spirit enters into us, we are lifted into the life of God, and we are fully capable of experiencing that life. Now, we need to be formed. There's a lot that gets in the way of us experiencing that life of God, but that when the Spirit of God is in us, the Spirit of God is in us. And if that is the way of God, a beautiful diversity and a singular community, then this surely must be the life that we seek to emulate. Our joy will come as we are in a community one with another, but with a singular substance and a direction and a call to life. And so Jesus teaches us that this is exactly how good worship works. We read John chapter 15. What we didn't read was how John chapter 15 starts. I skipped over that because I suspect this one will come to you very quickly. Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. Good, good. You, you do know this. I made, a good, I made a good assumption. I am the vine. You are the branches. There is diversity, and yet there is unity. We are different pieces, yes, but there is one reality. Where does one end and one begin? Where does the vine end and the branch begin? You biology people, me included, we can argue that out later. But who, who cares, really? Who cares? It's hard to tell. But surely it is the same nutrition, it is the same life to which everything pulls. One goal to which the entire plant strives. And when we discern our communion with God and discern our communion with others, we then are linked one to another, headed in a particular direction. And when we do that, Jesus says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. I have told you this so that. Jesus says, I want you to do these things. Why does Jesus ask us to do these things? So that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus tells us worship is about joy. Following Christ is about joy. One of the great saints from sour face saints, Lord, deliver us because that's not who God is. And so Jesus says, love each other as I have loved you. Be in relationship one with another, and there you will find joy. And when we love each other, the community then will bear fruit, fruit that lasts. 
And isn't that also what we want? We want this joy in our life that creates work in our life that means we're putting something into the world that has eternal significance. We have a purpose in life. This is who I am. This is what I'm made to be. And this is what I contribute to the world. That is where joy comes from. And liturgy is designed to help us get there. And so good liturgy nurtures the community. It's not about you in some way. It's about us. And it's always been about us. Liturgy nurtures, the com- and liturgy nurtures community in a variety of different ways. The first thing liturgy does is that it nurtures our relationship with the community past. Because liturgy is handed down to us. I didn't write the Lord's Prayer. You didn't write the Lord's Prayer. It's been around a long time. Apostles' Creed, been around a long time. The hymns? It's an interesting question. What's the most modern hymn we've sung in the last three years? I'm just curious. But like those hymns have been around a while. We receive them. Assuming that we have wise forebears, we perpetuate liturgy because the implicit message as we receive it is that our forebears are telling us these pathways have been good for us. These practices have shown us Christ and they've increased our love for God and one another. And so what they're saying to us when we inherit this liturgy is follow these roads, follow these paths. This is a good and solid pathway you can walk to get to where you want, which is love and joy. And when we understand the gift from our forebears, we also then are able to discern the community that will come after us. We, we discover that we too must be good forebears. So we say to those who come after us, many of who populate the front pews this morning, said, this has been handed on to us, we contributed to it, we, we tried to live it out in our own time. Yes, sometimes that means we made some changes to it so that it would speak to our own time. But this is what we have and we hand it on to you to, because these are good pathways to follow after God. Liturgy helps us discern the community now. And here's one of the things that made liturgy pop in a way that I, nobody had ever explained this to me. It was always told to me that my faith was my own and the implicit thing behind it was and mine alone. Our faith I was always taught, our faith, my faith only belongs to me. And I found that unsustainable. And what somebody once told me is the work that sustains us is not always our work. The prayers that sustain me are not always my prayers. One would think a ball player would have figured this out. The way do we get to 27 outs is not that Sam gets all 27 outs. Sam fields the balls he's supposed to field. I need my right fielder to get the ones that are hit to him. We're a team. Love and joy come not because of what God is just doing in me, though that is significant and important. It's really what God is doing in us. Because we need one another. We are not strong enough to walk the ways of liturgy all by ourselves. We cannot walk this faith alone. You're like, yes, I can. Well, let me ask you, what do you do when you don't feel like praying? What do you do when the words won't come? What do you do when the silence is too loud? And that's what I often find in myself. It's when I try to get to silence and the things that are hid in my head start screaming at me pretty good. Sometimes it's easier to be loud and not listen to the stuff that's in my own head. What happens when the silence is too loud? And this was brought home to me by a writer. Perhaps some of you have interacted with her work. Her name is Kathleen Norris. And Kathleen Norris wrote a book called Acedia and Me. 
And she was talking about this in her own life, this sort of like drudgery, this dullness that she was feeling and reflecting on sort of this sin of sloth that she talks about. And she, she's a beautiful writer and has a wonderful, this book is wonderful. But she spent a lot of time in a monastery trying to sort this out. And here's what she wrote to her friend. She said, when a friend asked me whether I had lost my faith, I replied, of course not. I believed in the reality of God's providence and love even when I did not sense his presence in my own life. And I could appreciate as never before the gift of Christian community. If God did not seem to be there for me, it was enough to know that God was active in the lives of others. If I could not pray, I knew that the monks were praying. Throughout the world, in whatever time zone, all day long, every day, they were expressing and honoring the utter stability of God's love. When she couldn't pray, she was being prayed for. The prayers were still ascending. And when we cultivate that sense of we... When we cultivate, sometimes I show up because I am ready to pray, and sometimes I show up because I cannot pray. When we cultivate that sense of we, when prayer is bigger than your prayers or my prayers, it really is our prayers, we are much more able to connect with joy, wisdom, questions, strength, and courage that don't always have to belong to us. We can share, you see. Your strength can be mine. My insight can be yours. Together, we draw on the rich resources that are here so that we all together move as one towards Christ. We can never fall quite so far when we are attached to others. And let me tell you, if you doubt this, you can argue with me all you want about this, but I'll tell you, that whole year that we did COVID and it was just me in here, Y'all are like, yes, Sam, we, I, you're probably going to say that, your, Sam, your prayers really helped everybody. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying at all. got lonely in here. Marianne, give me an amen on that. It get lonely in here. It was your prayers that supported me. It was your showing up that gave me the courage to keep talking into an empty building, Marianne notwithstanding. It was your prayers that kept things going, not me. You supported me. And that's exactly how this is supposed to work. We pray these words sometimes because they are ours and we pray these words because sometimes they are others. And finally, very quickly, liturgy is also the work we do for the community. And I'll simply leave you with this idea. One time I remember talking to a dear atheist friend of mine and we joke with one another. The reason I like talking to atheists is because I don't have to talk shop. I don't have to talk about work. But I talked to him one time who was going through a time and he says, I have no intention of coming to your worship, but he says, I'm really glad to know that somebody's praying for me. Even, it's, it's almost like it's, in, it's inside of us. We must be prayed for. That is important to us, even if we reject the tenets of faith. He's like, I'm really glad to know somebody's praying for me. Thank you. And friends, every time somebody drives past this building, Every time somebody has some kind, of a, some kind of a glimpse of like there's a community of faith somewhere in the world that is gathering to pray, it is our shared love and worship that acts as a powerful witness to the goodness of the kingdom, which isn't just for the people who congregate here, it is for the whole world. We pray today not just for the people who are here, we pray today for all the people who would never have any intention of being here. Good liturgy is our first step in evangelism, the invitation to participate in the love for our community that ultimately creates joy.
So it should not surprise us that Paul calls us to joy all the time. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. It's a command, not an option. He says, be joying together as one body, diverse and yet one substance. Loving one another, he says, seek the things that make for joy. And what are the things that make for joy? Love God, love one another, discover your authentic self, and live out that authentic self with courage. So how do we do that? We do that in the way we pray. Paul doesn't give us the words to say, but he gives us an environment that we create. He said, in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God will guard your hearts and minds. Liturgy, then, is about cultivating environments of worship founded in our most basic beliefs, principles, and desires. Create an environment where you and I together can thrive. This is what he's saying. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, think about such things and allow other people to think about those things. Dwell on these things as a community and we can't help but create good liturgy. So what is true? We are one body in Christ. Think about that. Joy is found as we connect to one another. What is noble? Supporting one another, regardless of sort of how we feel in a moment. What is pure? What is pure is who God has made you to be and who God has made me to be. And we could go on and on and on with this. But in all of this, we call another, we call one another to this work as we've already done today. Consider our call to worship. We cry out to each other. Don't come as a number. Don't come as beggars. Don't come as party crashers. Don't come. Come because you are beloved. We need you to say it for one another and we need you to hear it for yourselves. We confess deep joy cannot exist where truth is not still deeper. And so where have you not yet fully grown into your full self? Where have we not fully grown into our full selves? Well, let's own it. We are loved. We need not fear. And so we, all, so we say, Lord, you've still got more work to do in us, and that's what we're here to do. Show us what's up. And then arm in arm, we pray what we call the collect or the prayer of the day. We collect these prayers and consider the collects we prayed over the last couple of weeks. Give us grace, O God, to readily answer the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We prayed, grant that your people, illumined by your grace, may shine with the radiance of Christ's glory. Are these not joyful prayers? A couple of weeks ago, lead us who know you now by faith to your presence where we may see your glory face to face. Arm in arm, acknowledging our frailty, looking forward to what God will still yet to do, we pray, Lord, do something great in us. And that is the community gathered in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That is a community that will gather with passion, will seek truth, and will be strengthened by community past, present, and future. That is the community that will cultivate joy because it will have found the deepest part of ourselves loved by God and liturgy will have been the thing that drew us together and drew love and joy out of us so that you can change and I can change. Forget forget all the stuff we do to ask liturgy to be awesome. What's awesome is that God is in the midst of it calling us to our best selves and that is joyful. Joyful. 